from Kirkco Media. America's always been the best of all things and, and the worst of all things, which is kind of its glory and its charisma. Don't get me wrong, I love the United States. You know, I chose to become an American. I raised my girls in the United States. You know, I found my education. My career could never have happened in a million years in Canada. There was a great line in the, in the Irish Times that said, the emotions towards America have been various since 1945, a good, bad, loving, hateful, whatever. But never before has the world felt one emotion for America, and that was pity. Wade Davis has traveled to the farthest corners of the globe. He's beautifully photographed and deeply studied societies of all kinds. And he's written two dozen compelling books about it. His talent for observing people and their life drivers is simply unmatched. Now, here with a marvelous eloquence, he is casting a light on the apparent direction of America. It may be hard to hear. It certainly has been for me. But absolutely everything he will describe about our current challenge as a country and as a people is simply undeniable. So buckle in and listen to this remarkable man. But as you do, make a conscious choice. Because it is our reaction to these revelations that can set a tone for our future. We can get angry, we can deny, we can accept his view as inevitable and lazily go back to posting nonsense on our TikTok accounts, or we can do the hard thing. We can change our future. Maybe, just maybe, Wade's comprehensive catalog of America's ills can be a wake-up call to you and to me. We can take each of his observations and we can do the work, open our hearts, take some responsibility for the lives of our neighbors, nurture our workforces, and have gratitude for our co-workers. But I have a theory. It's a wild one, but it just may be true. Wade Davis is actually the reincarnation of Charles Dickens and his ghost of Christmas yet to come as he darkly displays to a scared and broken Scrooge all of his sins and his terrible fate. While Wade Davis catalogs our sins and points us to our sad and terrible fate, ask yourself, is it really inevitable? Or is it possible that he's doing us a great favor? Is there still time, like with Ebenezer? Can we change our future and save ourselves, our country, and what we've always wanted to stand for? Does Wade's revelation come to us, well, just in time? Welcome to Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. So, uh, welcome to our panel. Firstly, our co-host, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and the widely quoted human historical and political encyclopedia, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. Nice to see you too, and nice to have Wade here. Nice to meet you, Ed. Thanks very much. Also remotely zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. Hi, Jane. Nice to see you, too. Delighted to be here and uh, delighted to be with you, too, Wade. Thank you very much, Jane. And our special guest, Wade Davis, a writer, photographer, a filmmaker. And after his 13-year tenure as explorer-in-residence at the National Geographic Society, he took his current post as professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. He has authored 22 books, all of which you must acquire. He holds degrees in anthropology, biology, a PhD from Harvard. He's been awarded 11 honorary degrees and too many awards and medals to list. 
you simply must visit daviswade.com and experience, at very least, his remarkable photography. And he's written so many articles, including in Rolling Stone, The Unraveling of America, which is a subject for us to explore today. Welcome, Wade. It's really an honor to have you here. Well, thanks very, very much, Bill. I think it was Forbes magazine said anthropology was the most pointless undergraduate discipline to engage if you actually wanted to both get a job and have a role in the world. And I can't think of anything kind of sillier because anthropology is a study of us. It's a study of humanity. Its fundamental mission has been to reveal to the world the interconnectedness of humanity, uh, which has now been reaffirmed by genetics. We know that the uh, genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race has been proven to be an utter fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. You wrote this remarkable essay that was published in the Rolling Stone, The Unraveling of America. I think the thing we have to always remember in this piece I wrote in Rolling Stone is by no means uh, a critique of America in a gratuitous sense. I think of it more as a kind of a love letter. You know, if you have a family member in trouble, the first step in a successful intervention is to hold a mirror to them to show how far they've fallen. And that realization becomes the first step on the path of re habilitation of regeneration. You know, it, it's astonishing to recall what America did in the Second World War. It's not hyperbole to say that it literally saved civilization from going down a dark hole of oblivion beyond anything in our imaginings, uh, had that war been lost. Here's a great statistic. For every four pounds of material that the Japanese Empire of the Sun got to a frontline troop, the Americans got two tons across 13,000 kilometers of open sea. You're using these as comparisons to where we've come, obviously, to try to outline to us and wake us up a little bit as to how we need a reboot. America has shown through its history it's capable of overcoming any impediment, any challenge, once it comes together in common purpose. I think the, the bigger point in trying to understand the issues raised in this Rolling Stone piece is to recognize that out of the disaster of the Second World War, with Europe and Asia prostrate, America inherited the, the mantle of world leadership. And in that moment in which 4% of the world's population generated 50% of the world's economy, making 90% of the world's automobiles, it critically allowed for a truce between labor and capital that gave us a middle class. It gave us a weekend. It gave us a, a time when a, a single breadwinner could support a wife, a family, buy a house, buy a car, and look forward to a bright future. Jumping to today now, by comparison, you, you also wrote that this pandemic has had an absolutely devastating impact on the reputation and international standing of the United States of America. You said that COVID has reduced to tatters the illusion of American exceptionalism. What I mean by that is the nation that once spat out jet planes by the hour suddenly in the way COVID was found to not be able to even manufacture the basic needs of the frontline workers. Uh, a nation state that had led the way in medical innovation, defeating polio and smallpox, found itself led by an individual who was advocating the use of disinfectants for the treatment of disease that he intellectually could not understand. A nation woke up to the fact that every day uh, 2,000 people were dying, that, that one American was dying every hour of every day from a disease that we had completely kind of missed the boat on. And that's what I sort of meant in the idea that COVID 
revealed the challenges that America now faces today. Not everything has been great for this country. I mean, let's be honest. We built this country on the economy of slavery. We suppressed anyone who we felt was a little different, whether racially or, or gender. I mean, or, America's always been the best of all things and, and the worst of all things, which is kind of its glory and its charisma. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the United States. You know, I chose to become an American. I raised my girls in the United States. You know, I found my education. My career could never have happened in a million years in Canada. Uh, my father-in-law was almost U.S. president. My, my son-in-law is serving as an active member of your military as we speak. So this, you know, none of what I'm saying is anti-American. You know, let me just cite one statistic. On July 30th of this summer, when America announced close to 60,000 new cases of COVID, just shy of that, the total number of COVID cases in all the hospitals in British Columbia, where I live, there were only five cases of COVID. As an anthropologist, I've got to ask you, Wade, why is that? What was the root cause? When you uh, politicize something as fundamental as using a mask to protect your fellow citizens from yourself, uh, when, you, when you rush off to beaches as a political statement or to conventions, Americans sort of think that's a celebration of freedom, but it's actually a demonstration of weakness, the weakness of the people who lack the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. David Frum had a great article where he gave a personal account of crossing the border into the United States and then back into Canada. You know, he went into Maine and all he was asked is, you know, do you have any booze or were you, you know, these standard questions. Uh, he comes back into Canada and of course at the US border, nobody's wearing masks. You come back into Canada, my daughter just went through quarantine here. It is deadly serious. Uh, we have fines of up to three quarters of a million dollars for anyone who breaks quarantine and jail time. My daughter came home, Bill. Uh, my wife and I were not even able to pick her up at the airport. She works for the Defense Department in D.C. and was able to bring her work home because of COVID. And then she had to present the customs people with an absolute plan as to how she's going to quarantine, where, her phone number, and the health authorities called her up to make sure she was in fact following the protocols. And I know from anecdotal information that had she not been there to receive those phone calls, we would have gotten a visit from the police. And this isn't police harassment. This is the collective needs of the society being met. And that's why we had five COVID cases in British Columbia when you announced 60,000. But basically you're saying that under a circumstance like pandemic, the Canadian method actually brings society together with a certain amount of discipline that no question America lacks. Bill, I think what Wade is talking about is a shift in our culture that has happened since the 1950s and 1960s. Yes, America has always been about rugged individualism, but there's a balance between the individual and society that has tipped from more balanced in the 50s, 60s to very much towards it's all about me, which started in the 1980s. So it's not a matter of whether Canada is disciplined and America is not. It's, all, it's a view of our freedom. Jane made a very good point when she talked about how America exists in a tension, the American dream exists in a tension between community and individualism. And that's always been true. When you think about it, I don't think there's probably ever been a time in America where there has been more me-ism 
And I think meism is not the same as rugged individualism. When you look at our frontier, there was always rugged individualism. But when those settlers went out and settled that frontier, there was an intense understanding of you being part of a community. You needed it to survive. And in World War II, there was rationing and everybody sacrificed to make all that possible. I do agree with you that we had a moment when we celebrated uh, the world of Capra, but I just think that we have a tension and we do have a myth of community, but we also have a myth of the rugged individualism. This meism I'm talking about has, is not the same as rugged individualism. It is, it's all about me. I don't want to pay for schools for anybody else's kids. I don't want to pay for healthcare for anybody else's kids. And if I'm rich, it's all because of what I did. No acknowledgement that it's related to anything else that society provides you. It's different. Ed, the sacrifice that America took at the time of World War II, did everybody just hop on without question? Or was there actually some challenge at that time as well? Because I have a feeling that there's a lot less change here than some of you are describing. That's a great question, because you look back at the, the rising challenge of Europe, of Hitler and of, of uh, fascism and of Japan, and leaders do matter. I totally agree with Wade. Leaders matter. You look at the times of American crises, and up pop our three greatest leaders, Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They took times of enormous divide. As some people say, there are better angels and there are worse devils. Yeah. And pulling on those better angels has always been an enormous challenge for America. But, you know, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at Washington, famously couldn't tell a lie that the current president can't recognize the truth. If Lincoln celebrated charity toward all and malice toward none, Trump has inverted that to um, supporting malice towards art and charity for none. If you analyze the, the election of 2016, 62 million literally elected to use their precious vote to vote their indignations, personal indignations. I take a somewhat different view of the election as Jay knows. People vote their hopes. And I don't think that Hillary Clinton gave them anything to hope for. Given that those were their motivations in 2016, and I believe me, I had trouble voting for another Clinton myself. But what I don't understand is why, given that he didn't deliver on any of those promises, are they still so bonded to him? Guys, I think that's a great question for when we return. We'll be back in 30 seconds. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? Okay, we're back with my co-hosts Jane Albrecht, Ed Larson, and our special guest Wade Davis. Wade, ask that question again because I think that was really profound. I totally reject the idea that every Trump voter in 2016 uh, was somebody who crawled out from beneath a stone as is portrayed in the liberal media or, or in the Democratic ranks. But what I don't understand is how that cohort, given that he did not deliver on a single one of those promises, with the possible exception of stacking the judiciary with, with um, conservatives, why do they cling to him with, with such tenacity to this day? 
Actually, we had a previous show here on Meet Me in the Middle with some gentlemen that I thought were really profound who actually defined the mindset of the conservative voter. And they said that the most powerful driver was fear of chaos. It's clear that they are simply trying to avoid the chaos that they feel the Democrats will bring, or at least that's what the rhetoric is. I do think the people who voted for Trump, a good chunk of them were frustrated by the non-responsiveness of the system to their needs for a long time. And this was basically their Hail Mary pass. What happens in 2020 will be another question. So, Wade, I think that your message actually was probably well-delivered at the right time when America as a society, as a community, can make a decision to make a change. And one of the things that's interesting, I guess, is the response to this bloody article. I mean, you know, I did it on spec. Nobody expected it to, to, to take off as it did. And the responses, which um, kind of fall predictably into two camps, are, are, are interesting. You know, the people who are fundamentally sympathetic with the arguments are, respond with maybe predictably deep sadness, you know, and, and, and resolve. Like, okay, we've been woken up. Let's think about these things. Let's correct these things. And I think that's wonderful. The vitriolic communications that have come my way are remarkable in their singular unwillingness to deal with any of the issues, any of the questions. You know, you know what, Wade, can we just talk about your signs of progressive change for a minute? Because I have a theory about one of the ills of our society that was best described by you and the reaction to your article. The reality is that once upon a time, the smallest minds in America could influence the people within shouting distance. And now social media has given them a massive megaphone where they can react to someone like you to millions of people. And they have this massive microphone and can have a massive audience. That's one of the biggest problems with our society. That's not a change. Those people have existed throughout our history. They just happen to have a platform now. What are we to do about that? Yeah, there's, a, there's an incredible, as I'm sure that both Jane and Edward have seen in their own careers, you know, the, the democratization of of opinion, the, the disappearance of discretion, the anonymity of the internet allowing you to say whatever you feel like saying, and the fact that most Americans now get their news from Facebook, not from the traditional media. And the algorithms, of course, um, collect our values together into cohorts so that we never speak to anyone who doesn't already agree with us. This is the most pernicious influence of social media. But what should we do about it, Wade? We are where we are. We have to regulate the internet. I hate to say that. You cannot have institutions as powerful as Facebook paying lip service to these issues and eliminating the odd bit of hate commentary. It used to be, whether you were in small-town America or whether you were in a neighborhood in New York, uh, social control sort of limited what you could say and what you could do because you were in a community mm -hmm. and the community could exert control. Now you can find your own extreme community spread out over the world rather than necessarily go to governmental regulation of this. Federal law was passed, as you, as you know, basically immunizing the content purveyors, be the Facebooks or whoever of the world, from liability for what was said on their platforms. If you got rid of that law and allow there to be liability for people injured 
by the content that is knowingly carried on Facebook, well, then the legal system itself would go a long way toward regulating that without having to trust some government to come in and regulate. And would that it, might be a more logical way to do it since it was the government that gave that immunity to those content providers simply because those content providers paid great big contributions to the members of Congress, both parties. This is a nonpartisan comment to give them that immunity from liability. Now, if they were liable for the content that was spread, they might start self-regulating that content. I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, the minute you try to regulate through government intervention, you create political disputes and, and inefficiencies. And uh, when you can just simply say, take away that regulation and you can liberate the thing like that, that's the way to go. I'm not talking about heavy regulation. I think you need a combination of two. And I think one reason Mark Zuckerberg wants it or is to provide this sort of base level playing field so that if they do get liability, they know where that liability lies. You know, Bobby Kennedy is a good friend of mine, and what he wrote about the Fairness Doctrine is so true. You know, when the airways came along, the question was, who owned them? You could own a radio station, but the airways were public domain. And the Fairness Doctrine gave us Walter Cronkite and the idea that news was balanced. I don't know if we can really trust government to effectively regulate. That's where your reference to the fairness doctrine was so nice, because the government simply said, you've got to have fairness, you've got to have balance. That Actually, that law was designed by Herbert Hoover when he was Secretary of Commerce. So, Wade, your essay at first read could feel like it's hopeless, and yet it's clearly and soberly written and therefore giving us kind of a 2020 vision to look back at our mistakes and and also embrace some of our triumphs that we've achieved. What should we do now with this new education and our new clarity, our new vision, especially in a, an election year? Well, you know, thank you for giving me this opportunity, Bill, in general. It's been a delight to be with both um, Jane and Ed. It's actually one of the most fun interviews I've ever done because oh, it's, it's kind of fun. You know, we're actually having a conversation. Rolling Stone has actually, uh, you know, asked me to do a follow-up which is kind of a, a roadmap of hope. Like, what do we actually do? And one of the, the things we've been talking about is sort of going out on the road and doing a kind of um, ethnography of America, you know, almost like Robert Frank's The Americans. And one of the things that I pride myself on is that I, I don't believe in enemies only solutions to any issue. I guess this is partly the Canadian in me. I really believe in consilience and, and finding a way to find common ground. And you know, as an anthropologist who, who, you know, especially when I had the position um, as being a social anthropologist of the National Geographic, I was traveling all the time and, and having the good fortune to spend time with not just one or two indigenous societies, but with literally scores and scores of indi indigenous peoples all around the world. So I, I like the idea of trying to reach out to all corners of America and be a conduit to common good and common ground. You know, in, in the past few years, there's been an outpouring of protests and new voices speaking up for the rights of a diverse number of Americans who have felt voiceless until now. So what would a healthy leadership look like in our country today at a time when, well, the economy and the climate are battered down? And it certainly is a striking, challenging moment in our society. Describe what the right leader could do for this country. 
uh, the right leader would bring us together, uh, who, who would find the better angels of our nature, as, as Lincoln said, you know, who would, who would leave no doubt whatsoever that it was time to eliminate the original sin of the Republic, which is struggles with race, who would expose to all people that race is an utter fiction, and at the same time, not allow a culture of grievance to dominate the public discourse, to create some kind of sense that to be an American is not to be um, oneself, but to be part of something greater than oneself, and not a kind of flag-draped patriotism, which is so easy to evoke, but rather something deeper than that, a true commitment and knowledge, uh, very much as Jane said, is, is that you know the roads we drive on weren't paid for by you, the hospitals we build, the national parks that we have. There is a great grand American experiment that has always been the beacon of hope for the world. And believe me, when one of the points I make in that article is, is that if and when the hinge of history opens to Asia and the torch passes to China, this will not be a time to gloat. It will not be a moment to celebrate. If and when the torch of history passes into the hands of uh, a communist party with such uh, contempt for democracy, such treatment of ethnicities, creating a social capital index to monitor the lives of their own citizenry, we will be very nostalgic for the best years of the American century. Let's all hope that everything I describe in this article can be addressed. And let's just hope that the hint in the article that this may be the end of the American era, there is no one in the world who would rather be proved to be wrong than myself. Wait, I'm willing to make you a bet. This election in November, America will have the greatest number of voter voices in the history of our nation, which shows that there's still an awareness still a concern, and still a path forward for our country because of people like you who point out that this is the moment for which we need it. I want to thank you for being here today, and I want to thank you so much for, for spending this time, and oh boy, I'd love to have you come back again. But first, we have a rare opportunity before we leave because you've got a book called Magdalene, A River of Dreams, which launched yesterday. It's a biography of Columbia. Give us a preview of what we can expect when we get that book. Well, Hector Abad, the great Colombian writer, called it a love letter to his nation. You know, I think there is a parallel to what's going on in, in, um, in the United States and that no country was more divided at war with itself than Colombia. And yet the people have found their way to a, a peace, a tentative peace, a, a precarious peace, but peace nevertheless. You know, here's a country that has had a three-way civil war uh, fueled exclusively by the proceeds of the cocaine trade. The country has nevertheless maintained democracy, civil society, greened its cities, created millions of acres of national park, and paved the way for an incredible economic renaissance as two generations of young Colombians forced to flee are coming back to their country. And we all have a kind of obligation because remember that the fuel of the war has always been cocaine. Think about this. At the height of the cartel, the Medellin cartel was budgeting $1,000 a week to buy elastic bands just to wrap the money in. The, the war on drugs has been responsible for Colombia's agonies. Now, just think about this. How would Americans feel if Canada had uh, patterns of drug consumption in the bars and boardrooms of our country, laws that created the mafia, facilitated its wealth, and yet did, our, our enforcement did nothing to curtail the distribution of the drug, such that 85 million Americans were driven from their homes well, that is exactly what happened in Colombia. So in that sense, 
uh, it behooves us to pay attention to this country as it struggles to, to find its way forward. The world is falling apart, but happily Colombia is falling together. And the book is a celebration of a nation that is not a place of violence and war, but is home to the greatest biological, ecological diversity on the planet. Thank you to Wade Davis uh, for joining us. Don't forget to follow him at daviswade.com. And of course, my co-hosts, Jane Albrecht and Ed Larson. If you're inspired by this edition of Meet Me in the Middle, please send a link to your friends and plan a Zoom discussion, perhaps over a good single malt. This is a bunch of very important subjects that are worthy of your consideration and your discussion with your friends. Also, please leave a comment about our show. Special thanks to our general manager, Stuart Halpern, for bringing Wade to us today. And our producer, Mike Thomas, sound designed by Michael Kennedy. And the music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And by the way, if you haven't listened to last week's show with economist Daron Asamoglu, a Nobel Prize-bound economist, do yourself a favor and load that one up next. Bye-bye, everybody. Don't forget to vote. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.